Hello, I'm Aidan Gallagher. I'm Peter Reeves. Welcome to API, our integration podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to set the world to rights on various topics in the world of enterprise integration, and it scratches our collective itches as engineers who just want to uh, rant about enterprise IT over a cup of coffee. Or tea. Hello, Peter. Hello, Aidan. How are you? Excellent. Good. <laughs> um, this is episode two of our series on changing IT design by the use of cloud. Um, we're going to talk about how application integration and flows um, you know, and their interfaces have, you know, have changed because they are now running on cloud environments. So this conversation is really to discuss how they've changed. Yeah, what a title. We initially did uh, environments in the first episode and we were going to do applications in this episode, but then applications grew into integrations, grew into flows, grew into interfaces. So we're talking about anything probably any kind of custom code specific to your business or organization we actually go even further it's it's peripheral it's i think we're going to end up talking about security and devops and latency and all sorts so let's see where we get to once we uh start talking let's go on an adventure yeah the obvious place to start is cloud native isn't it um yeah if you think about d- developing something for cloud native I don't know what comes to your mind first, but whenever I think about it, I think about, well, this is going to sound really dumb, I think about its its location in the cloud, but I think of the fact that your application is no longer hiding behind layers and layers of firewalls and network architecture, and you no longer really have that warm, fuzzy, defense-in-depth feeling that you're behind a hardware firewall, a WAF, another firewall, another WAF, another XML firewall that someone bought 20 years ago. Everything is accessible from the internet and and you can't hide things away. And so because of that, you have to think about building a well-rounded cloud-native application. Even if it is behind a WAF and firewalls and all that, the difference mm-hmm. with cloud-native and putting applications on cloud is that you can't make that assumption anymore. Before, you could have said, well, it's internal, so I'm assuming that it's safe. Uh, whether that was a good decision to make in the past or not but definitely when you're talking about cloud deployments you can't make that assumption because there's potential that everything's available um, on the internet everything's got an ingress in you know we're moving away from defense in depth and instead saying well no everything has to be secure trust nothing it's think like a hacker um, assume that everything everything you do every integration point every touch point is a potential threat and how can we stop that threat coming forward? And I think that's a, a massive thought shift in, in cloud, even if it's a simple one for most people to grasp. It's, I think it still is a, a big change to how we traditionally would have done deployments. Yeah. Do, do you feel that you could have naively deployed something that you thought has not really been secured, not really, really, not really been had some TLC? We know, we know from our you know from our previous experience and some of the systems that we've seen that there's there's all sorts of bodges floating around <laughs> well sometimes well sometimes you get an exception you say well actually we're not going to we're not going to turn tls on for now because we trust that we're in the internal network so that's fine and it ends up that it never gets turned on yes that, that's an absolute classic one i can't yeah everyone thinks oh it's so much easier whenever it's so much easier with security turned off we can just we can iterate faster we can develop faster and then and then the last task on the project will be turn security back on 
and they think, oh, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Oh, well, well, we'll just we'll just leave it off for the first release. Leave it off, and we'll get to it later, and it, and it just becomes something that goes in the backlog that never gets done, or mm. or unless you've got a very good security team who says no, you we're we're forbidding you from from deploying it. I just think that from a security aspect, the whole con conscious has, has changed, and I think um, developers definitely and application developers, integration developers now know that that's going to happen that they've got they've got to be um secure from from day one and i think it's changed the mentality of of development as well yeah the whole security first principle we we've 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 kind of almost said we've started with a bit of a like we're having a go at the cloud but this is all good i I think more security if you think of the conversation we've been having for years we've always been saying oh you should probably secure that system (laughs) hmm and it's always, you know, the, the, the response oh, has always so been, oh, it's not a priority for now or whatever. Security doesn't make us more money, doesn't generate more value. I was going to say the cloud also has benefits in this respect, because when you're in cloud land, um, there are lots of kind of pre-built components and, and SaaS services and drop-in type things that you can that you can enable quite quickly. So potentially when you, the, there's lots of, I don't want to say shortcuts, but there are lots of tools and services out there that can benefit you in this way. So um, like you can get, you can get SaaS services that will, I don't know, sort out OAuth for you or sort out some kind of point-to-point security or federated security for you. And again, it goes back to the whole cloud thing of it can be made very easy just put your credit card in but that but that option's there and so you can use i don't know yeah oauth or some sort of google login for, for for security that sort of thing it's very easy to kind of get get rolling with those things when you're in cloud land because suddenly you've got the whole all of the various services on the internet to play with so that's an interesting one the google login um i've just thought that how many online applications can you log in via like your facebook account now how many Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts like uh, are are bots these days? So you know you don't have to go through any validation process when you log when you join these services. Mm-hmm. So it is easier, but I suppose some of those templates are in themselves because they're abstracted away from you. You have less understanding of how well they are performed. So I have a bit of a tangent there. I've just thought to myself about applications I've seen that use it. So Map My Run, for example, connects to my Facebook, but it doesn't know I'm a real person. And but that's that's by and by. Don't let me don't let me distract us. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I'm glad to hear that you're still jogging and everything. I got a, I got an e- I got an email from Strava the other day saying we're going to terminate your account unless you do something. Did they? <laughs> yeah. Sad. Log in, go for a run. Yeah. When 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 my phone broke like ages ago and I bought a new phone, I never reinstalled Strava. Poor Strava. Poor Strava. Anyway, we've di- security. So security is one, being more conscious of security. But I suppose the other big factor in of cloud native is is containerization, isn't it? Yeah. So in our previous episode we touched on standardization a little bit. With cloud and everything being commoditized and standardized and off the shelf, applications are generally becoming containerized and there's a push for infrastructure configuration and applications as code, as in everything is in a written out as code in a declarative format and then built to that specification. And this means that anyone can pull that code in or make a copy of it or see what production looks like down to the specification and and so developers of applications need to ensure that the things that they uh, that they put into their spec that they put into their container can work on uh, any machine or system that's interesting isn't it because what that allows us to do 
with having everything as code and having everything as declarative means that the more standardized or the more abstracted away from environment specifics we are when we're building applications the easier it is for us to move them to other locations they're more portable aren't they i suppose i, th- I think yes yes they're more portable we've talked about containers many times but um the fact that they've become a standard yeah like a standard commoditized way of executing stuff means that uh, people are incentivized to behave in that way people don't want to pay for all the overheads and if it's the case that your cloud provider hyperscaler has a container workload platform like we've got of course gcp or eks or aks they've all all, all the big cloud providers have have got a container platform which will be cheaper than running it's cheaper to run a container than a vm people are kind of being passively influenced to deploying containers and it's not a bad thing because containers simplify and standardize a lot of things They're very nice and if and you were saying about as code and if you think about mm. the deployment as code where everything's declarative and and actually if we link it in with what we we're just saying about security the yeah. whole concept of deploying those standardized systems makes it is even easier when the deployment method for the applications are standardized as well through like devops and devsecops devsecops is a good buzzword i feel i feel, I feel it's i feel it's, it's it's a lot rarer than devops I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about it i think there's more consciousness about baking security into your devops pipeline now um part mm-hmm. of, as putting that as part of your automated testing or doing static code analysis of of your code to ensure that certain security principles are included. Say you're building an API, making sure that there are, you know, basic authentication included in the, in the specification, for example, if you're using OAS. Mm-hmm. That the new tools, it made it so that it's now security by default. It's easier and expected to have security because it's included in the pipelines. So the security team member can be embedded in an individual team, define early on what those security requirements are and then because everything's done in devops maybe made idempotent and redeployable and reusable you can bake those security principles in really early on and it means that application developers are forced or you know application testers are forced to acknowledge that there's security requirements and to deal with them appropriately got a lot of um stuff in there first off oas (laughs) yeah open api specification yeah, um, I forgot what the other one was you got in there. Um, idempotent. Yeah, uh, you can redeploy something multiple times, and it'll be the same every time. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's that. Yeah, that's how. That's what it means. Dictionary. Um, I, <laughs> I was, I was thinking you were going to talk about transactions there, but yes, of course, deployments. Yeah, I think there was one. Uh, there was there was one other buzzword there. Oh, I shouldn't say buzzword. There was one other technical term there that I, I think. Static I code analysis, on. maybe. Maybe we ought, we ought to get good at explaining to uh, and, and defining some of the words that we use, shouldn't we? No, no, we're elitist. There is a, bar- elitist there's a, there's a barrier to entry. <laughs> yeah. What about testing on DevOps? Because I was talking about security there, but I suppose it expands out to other types of testing, doesn't it? Yes, DevOps and testing in the cloud. The cloud allows you to uh, make throwaway environments so that you can always be running tests. You don't need to wait for a test environment to become free. If your test environment's being automatically deployed, um, why aren't your tests being automatically driven and executed? Yes, I think that's the next logical step of your of your pipeline. Once you've built and deployed, you should probably also be executing tests and popping out a, re- a report at the end of it. This means that the test writing can also be done before any kind of development, and you get into you can get into a nice test driven development loop. Um, again, this isn't 100% specific because of cloud, but it makes it a lot easier. It means because because everyone's doing everything th- via programmatic interfaces anyway, you're deploying your 
environment or you're deploying your code via various sort of cloud build tools. We've, we've mentioned Terraform, this kind of provi provider specific ones like CloudFormation, and then, well, well, the whole container stack has got many different tools that you can use. Um, because you're already in an in a kind of an automated pipeline space anyway, what's one more automated set of tests? I think as well that a lot of software at the moment is slowly moving towards uh, self-generated tests as well, whether that's mm. through, we'll call it AI, that's predictive modeling for what tests will be. Mm. Maybe, maybe that's AI, maybe that's AI, maybe I'm a, a skeptic. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's cruise control for developers. It kind of pops you out of like a head start or, yeah, or exactly, easy yeah. bits and and then you've just got to read through it and say yeah no yeah change done whereas you're not writing a load of boilerplate and fluff all the time yeah i think the big thing is that the tools that developers need to build their integrations their applications their flows whatever have massively uh, changed over time that increasingly it's easier to to do the periphery stuff that isn't part of your app actual application or integration you know test tools security tools all of these are are more available more easy to use from that basis developing has has become a much more fun because you're only actually doing the bits of the integration or the application development that you need less so than the sort of periphery stuff that that generally is a bit of a drag <laughs> yeah you're, you're you're just you're just working on your your core business case you're functionality not... exactly oh, yeah. yeah exactly just just a bit of a bit of an aside in that kind of situation that we've talked about where you're using all these various tools that will hold your hand and do all the bits for you, so you just need to focus on writing your code, do you ever get a little bit worried about that? Because you think, wow, yes, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, but what if this stops working tomorrow? Or what if this random GitHub project stops getting supported and gets deprecated? Do you ever get a little bit worried? I do, and the other thing is... Is, is that trust issues? <laughs> when you When you think, what if the project's not around anymore? we've been bitten before that's why it's <laughs> yeah it's because a lot of stuff you can't guarantee it's going to be there you know in the past there's been apis and node modules and that you've depended on and then they've just disappeared or they've not supported anymore or you know they've got a vulnerability and, and the community just no longer is is active i think that's a that's a concern for people but also there's constantly new developer tools and it feels like that that's another thing i suppose that developers have to be concerned about is what's the next big thing what am i going to have to have learned before i can get the next job at, at the next fun company doing the next big thing we've gone from node being a massive thing recently to now it being more about go you know golang has become huge i was about to say yeah i, I, I hear people always ranting about go it's it's um it's done had some great marketing and it was quite it was quite daunting when we first when i first started in the it world as well because it was just like everything was new but then every time i thought oh, i've mastered this thing all of a sudden the next big thing was coming out and i'm like oh, you've got to learn that one as well you've got to learn the next one as well you've got to learn the next one as well rather than being good at a lot of things eventually you say well i'm going to just be good at this one thing because i like i like it and i'm passionate about it the fact that some teams and some organizations constantly trying to use the next big craze the next big thing means eventually those skills are going to become mainstream or potentially edge case and hard to find which can make put a lot of pressure on existing development teams especially if you're the only person who knows how to maintain a specific system well i feel at that point you have to recognize the writing on the wall and maybe start migrating but yes yes <laughs> yeah what does a typical cloud look like what if i say what does a cloud infrastructure architecture look like what, what, what would you think well i would i would compare it to one of our olden days 
on-premises architectures and I always think that someone's always there talking to you about HA, high availability, removing single points of failure and they always start off with two. There's always two of everything and now whenever you move into cloud everyone always talks about three. There's always three of everything. The power of three. Yeah, I think that's because uh, just the way things have started to fail over now that everyone uses quorum-based failover. When you start thinking about things with a high availability perspective you'll start digging into so different different cloud providers and hyperscalers have different terms but availability zones and regions and, and geos i kind of think of a region as being think of as a geography like uk or europe west or us east us east is the big one because i think us east is the default for aws which means that if you're not paying attention basically everything gets deployed in us east um, and then I think about an availability zone, which is a separate availability zone might be a separate data center or a separate set of data centers within a region or a geo or whatever. So if we're deploying in UK, there might be UK1, UK2, UK3. And, and this is kind of part and parcel of your cloud provisioning. So in, in some cases, it will be quite easy. Maybe if you're using some kind of... Um, framework or platform again like maybe a container platform that will scale things out for you automatically but that kind of latency and data center setup is usually provided out of the box by your cloud provider with the expectation that this will meet most of the um, requirements for modern peering so we've said quorum data replication that kind of thing I mentioned saying that in the olden days it always used to be two. It always used to be two things for HA, and now it's three things. I think that's because of a, a natural progression from... You no longer have things which are active-passive or active-standby, or you, you purchase two lots of kit, and one of them just sits there doing nothing until the first one breaks. Whereas people are more inclined to pay for something that's active-active, or active-active-active, or normally say quorum because that way you're kind of getting what you pay for and it just means that uh, you can afford to lose the loss of a third of your uh, of your throughput of your workload without any without any kind of penalty to losing the entire service yeah so i think when in the past when we did those switchovers they, those switchovers could be quick but also but there is still a time when when you aren't able to communicate with the service or the application whilst it was switching from the ha active to the ha passive and on top of that, you might have had DR on top. And the whole shape of it's changed, hasn't it? Yeah, typically three. If you have quorum, you'd have you'd have three, three one, one on each AZ. And you'd say, what happens if I lose one AZ? What happens if I lose two AZs? What happens if I lose three AZs? Uh, or what happens if I lose the region? And then I think it's a bit more complicated if you're architecting the availability and redundancy of the, of the application. But if you're just saying... I need this application and you trust the platform really all you need to say is I need this many replicas of this specific container or I need this many replicas of this VM yeah it's, it's a given isn't it it's an expectation now that the SLAs that the cloud provide will will meet your requirements and you just say how many whether you need it highly available or or not highly available and really that's what the architect should be doing to allow developers to develop well is make sure that all they have to say is, I want this to be highly available or not. And this kind of, I would say this this influences how your applications are sort of being designed. We've said sort of, yeah, to use Quorum to have 
sort of shared in memory counts or things like rate limits or rapid failover and the sort of the, the use of these kind of stretchy in memory in memory type technologies like redis or, or memcached yeah memcached d i don't know how to pronounce it i feel that given that this is this is the known and accepted cloud landscape of regions availability zones this is the latency figure that you've got to, we've got to work around that kind of dictates the way that your uh, application will get built yeah definitely and it's cheaper the fact that compute power is cheap means that having three replicas to make a quorum is is a very simple thing to do it's it's less of a choice than before because you're you're only you're optimizing your deployment essentially probably doesn't cost you anything to have three availability zones if you were if you if you were owning everything imagine if you had to stump up the 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 uh, the upfront cost for three data centers but i mean these these cloud providers they've got three data centers anyway you just say i'll have, I'll have one of there one of there one of there i'll have a slice easy, easy. of that and then at the individual container level you can say i want a specific amount of compute and memory power and um, it's all tied in with the container at startup time so it means that developers are able to rip out useless code to make it as small and lightweight as possible and it has an impact to, you know, use an open source that does everything modules potentially has too much code inside of it. So developers are having to be a bit more conscious about what they're deploying, ripping out unessential things and making sure that what's deployed is only what you need. You know, a couple of hundred lines of code rather than a thousand. Again, it goes back to how how things are paid for. If, you, if you're doing on-premises and you're making one big upfront payment, I'm going to pay X million pounds for, for a data center versus um, I'm going to build my application and then I'm going to be billed X number of pennies per, per minute or whatever that per, per CPU cycle per unit time. Then suddenly, well, can you save money on... In the first one, can you really save money by optimizing your code? Not really, until someone does the straw that breaks the camel's back and fills up the data center, and someone and some executive has to put their hand in their pocket for another few million to build the next one. But yeah, I feel uh, like with the traditional deployments, the billing, yeah. they just kept ballooning, and that's because everything was essential, and there wasn't time to go in and, and rip things out. Whereas now, there's an actual real-time benefit of reducing the the amount of resources that you're using. Yeah, and and. That that stems as well into lightweight deployment. So the the idea of decoupling functionality and having them independent makes sense. By decoupling them and saying, I'm going to have this one flow uh, running this bit of application, you can allocate the resource it needs. So if it needs to scale up, it scales up on its own. And developers can say, well, where are those boundaries? Where are those application boundaries? Which say how much impact one application has on the other what scaling does to it, what um, disaster recovery does to it, what happens if if they're in the same container and that container fails, how big an impact is that going to have on the organization? Do I want to split them and have one highly available and, and have the other one just, if it fails, it fails, it, come, it comes back up when it needs to. And and I think it's that application application boundaries and the ability to decouple aspects of an application that the cloud-based deployments has allowed developers to think about and, and actually do. I feel as though you're leading on to the, the natural logical next step, which is talking about on-demand computing of things like functions as a service or, or, or the serverless pattern, where that, that's like the most extreme version of, of, of kind of like the ripping out useless code or the only paying for what you're running, where it eventually turns out to say, well, 
for the most of the time we don't want it running the oh, we only ever want it running when it's got a task to do and then once it's finished that's it that's almost like the yeah like the log like the, the the logical extreme we we only want to pay for a defined amount of compute to run this transaction or to do this task and that's it yeah only pay i don't want to pay for what i'm running oh here's here's a question have you ever seen a function as a service uh, set up on premises um no no, me, me neither. But I, ha- I have seen some like uh, self-hostable projects that can do it. But I'm just, I'm just going to say that the, the this this very powerful pattern I've only ever seen on the cloud. I've never, I've never seen it on-prem. I also think it's been a theme of what we've been discussing today. Is all of these I think are possible on a traditional deployment on-premise. But here it's not that it's possible; it's expected. There's yeah. A, there's an assumption that it is there. It's not maybe we could build this. Oh yeah, it could be done. Because it, it, I don't think many, I think most things aren't technically impossible. I think they're technically possible in all in all places. It's just time cost. But there is an expectation now. There's an expectation that you can do all these things and you can do them easily. Whereas before there weren't. And I think that's just been accelerated by cloud and essentially the pooling of resources. And, you know, that there's real benefits of of utilizing them. Whereas before it was probably more hassle than it was worth. Right. Last, the last thing I thought about peter was was elastic scaling actually that's the buzzword but that's another sort of i think that's another like cloud only cloud provisioning only type thing i mean same same as function as a service have you ever seen any elastic scaling on premises no but to flip that i don't see i don't really think there's a lot of elastic scaling off premise um, at least not that I've seen. So let's go over it. Let's say elastic scaling is where you allow your workloads to flex and contract and you go back to the paper compute. And that means that your design restrictions and your limits around sizing are basically made easier or you get rid of get you get rid of them basically at a cost of, well, paying for it. Um, like if I said you can never run out of memory it'll cost you instead surely you'd always take that up because it would be more it'd be more cost effective just pay a little bit more compute rather than take the outage i think there's still a budgetary limit that's that's really if we're thinking about it it, again it's not a technical limitation is it you can say okay we'll scale to as big as we like but somewhere someone has to pay for that and if even whether that's licenses whether that's core memory on on the worker node that you're deploying on or the data center you're working on there is still that cost there and i think it's the cost that that limits um just how big you can make them and i think what i've seen is a lot of companies are continuing to set container deployments or their applications to the size that they think they will handle generally and then set the higher limit to be the mm, the peak i suppose the peak that they expect or peak plus a little bit more just in case they've get get more transactions through which generally is quite good as you know especially if you're a retailer or a bank and you get more transactions through it probably means you're making a bit more money <laughs> <laughs> there's a anxiety around under specking your application i think that's why we we have this why this scenario has happened i think that the reason why they end up being the same size as they are on premise is because people are worried that the performance will be in- inhibited and the amount of time it takes to elastically scale to the size you need will have a negative impact or the process of scaling up and scaling down will have an inherent cost that 
um, isn't there if you just have something the size that you need it when when you need it. So I'm not really seeing elastic scaling actually take hold in the organisations I've been working in. And I don't know if that's because that's just the way the, the chips have fell or, or what. I, I think I think that we work with the wrong organisations, <laughs> to be honest. I think it's because just in our day jobs, we often work with fixed size platforms and fixed size deployments. So we never really see absolute uh, elastic scaling going wild. I'd be interested um, to hear about elastic scaling in the wild that has been servicing large organisations. I, I, I would be interested in that if any of our listeners are... <laughs> have examples but again it's something i think is very useful it's just whether it's actually used um with a lot of these things it's not whether they're actually technically possible it's whether there's the will and there's the the climate to actually implement them. it's whether there's an expectation that you'll do elastic scaling whether there's an expectation that security is in by default um and i think once the expectation shifts once that attitude shifts from the expectation point of view everything else follows yeah, but I think all these um, things that are enabled by cloud shift and influence the way that you will design your applications. You will you will design them differently because you have different ways, easier ways of tackling the problems of availability of uh, sizing. Do you want to do our summary today, Peter? I can do our summary today. So, what were we talking about today? First, to first round that up. Today was us covering how to uh, also. Today was us covering how, uh, as part of the changing IT landscape of cloud, how your applications, integrations, flows, interfaces, how all sorts have changed. So the things that we've mentioned about how moving to cloud native has uh, meant that you're no longer hiding behind layers of firewalls and you can no longer really rely on defense in depth but that means that you often have to adopt a security first principle when you're developing. We talked about DevSecOps and DevOps and how since everything's gonna be automated and done through programmatic interfaces, you might as well get your DevSecOps, get your security practices in, get your test and automated test practices into your pipelines. How cloud forces you to think about availability zones, regions, latency between regions, and so how you might think about architecting your applications high availability and resilience we talked about how you might think about architecting your environment with response to scaling are you going to have a large upfront deployment or are you going to let it scale we talked about of course because we can't help ourselves putting everything in containers and how the benefits of that on cloud and finally we talked about how since you're paying for unit compute you might as well try and strip out and make things as lightweight as possible and maybe even consider things like serverless functions as a service type uh, type topologies that really maybe aren't as feasible on premises. Oh, and of course, we talked about our last point, which was how everyone's uh, how the cloud enables you to use all these nice shiny tools, which maybe aren't as uh, easy to pick up on premises. So we talked about things like GoLang and Terraform and lots of other bits and pieces and trendy things that you'll have heard of. If you're a developer moving to cloud and anything we've missed give us a shout let us know lovely that's all for this week thank you for listening bye bye goodbye <laughs>